Happy Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And we're going to take a look at that today as we do every time this year. You can be turning in your Bibles today to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Uh, while you are turning there, you know, one thing that's rich in the tradition and history of the Jewish faith is the feasts and the memorials and the remembrances. And those things are very important to their life, as, as it is to many cultures. But in the Jewish culture, it's particularly important because every year they have these points where they stop and they celebrate something about God, about his faithfulness, about his love. And as Christians, we have the same thing. We have this time of year, which is uh, what we call Holy Week, typically. We have uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. Then, of course, as we come to Christmas, we have the time where we remember and celebrate our Lord's birth. Uh, Pastor Mitch and I were talking this week, and, you know, when you think about these, these holidays, or the, you know, the word holiday means holy day, when you think about these holy days, these days are here for us to remember. And it's easy sometimes as we come to, to Easter and to Christmas to, you know, perhaps get a little bored with it or maybe, go, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, I've heard that passage before. I've heard that story before. It seems like we teach the same stuff every year. Well, you know, it's meant to make us remember. It's meant to be a memorial stone for us. So I, my prayer as we enter in today to this uh, most significant and important passage of Scripture is that we don't come to this with a, uh, a familiarity uh, in the sense of that we, we aren't open. Uh, familiarity, yes, hopefully we've heard the story, we've read the passages. Uh, one of the, the blessings of Palm Sunday is that it's in all four Gospels. And so uh, you can't miss it. If you're reading the Gospels, you're going to get uh, this day, Palm Sunday. So uh, let's look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 28 through the end. Uh, I'm going to read just down to verse 40 this morning for our edification. So uh, beginning uh, verse 28 of Luke chapter 19, and when he said this, that is Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing him? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of him. So those who were sent departed and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and he Threw their, excuse me, and they threw their own garments on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, they spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Lord, add your blessing to the reading of your word, this, the word of the Lord. And may our hearts be attentive and our minds open 
And may we be given spiritual insight and understanding. May we be quickened to the things of God today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we are once again, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. What do these labels mean and are they accurate? Well, we refer to them by these two names because the triumphal entry refers to the day, as we read in Psalm 118, that this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And that was not just some generic declaration that every day we get up 365 days a year, we think this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Yes, we should. But that phrase was uttered over this day. This day being the day that Jesus was coming to town. And the unique thing about this day as Jesus came to town is for the three years of his ministry, for the previous times that Jesus came to Jerusalem for the celebration of the feast, and there were seven Jewish feasts every year, three were compulsory for every male. That as Jesus came previously to these feasts, he came under a cloud of obscurity. He always sort of came maybe a day late, or he wanted to to sort of be under the radar, we would say, in, in today's language. But on this particular day, at this feast, Jesus wanted it to be known that he was coming because this was the day, this was his time. Prior to this point in the life and the ministry of Jesus, he was constantly telling his disciples, going all the way back to John chapter 2, when his ministry began and when his mother invited him to the wedding of Cana, in Galilee, you remember there that she had asked him to turn water into wine. And he said, do not trouble me, my time has not come yet. And Jesus repeated that phrase all throughout his ministry for that next two and three quarter years. My time has not come yet. And whenever he healed people, remember so often he told them, tell no one or maybe go show yourself to the priest. Or, you know, don't, don't go like shouting it, just go tell your friends and neighbors what God has done for you. Not what I've done for you, but what God's done for you. But in reality, of course, he was God. And so Jesus did these things under the cloud of obscurity, but today, this day, he's coming into the city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king. The word Jerusalem means city of peace. And Jesus was coming this day as their king, as their Messiah. So it was triumphal or triumphant in that Jesus was coming in to present himself to his people as the Messiah and as the king. But remember, they were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for someone who would deliver them from the oppression of the government. You know, today we talk about things like freedom of religion and we look at what's happened with uh, governors and governments and COVID and you know, people attacking the church and attacking faith and certainly that has happened. But sometimes as American Christians, we kind of rise up and we say, hey, you're trampling on my constitutional rights. Well, listen, much of the world does not have constitutional rights. Much of the world is at the mercy of the government, like Pastor Paul was just telling us. They're living in a Muslim country. I have several uh, friends who are Chinese believers, meaning they are not just Chinese in this country as believers. They are from the country of China and they were believers there before they came here, and they tell me what it's truly like. You know, when I see people post on Facebook, you know, because of mass restrictions or something, oh, this is, you know, like Chinese communism. No, it's not. You ha in China, you can't stand on the street corner and share the gospel. You can't do that in the Muslim countries. 
It's risk of life. It's risk of imprisonment. It's risk of uh, personal punishment. And in this day, there was a little bit of freedom because uh, the Jews were under the, the reign of Rome. But Rome gave them certain freedoms within Judaism, but they just their, their rule was keep it quiet. Don't make a stir. Don't cause a ruckus. As long as you guys are law-abiding citizens and you keep the, your little religion over here and you stay out of our hair, everything will be fine. So this day, as the feast was happening and as every feast happened, the Romans were there in, in uh, you know, full show of armor. They were there to make sure nothing happened, that there was no breakout, that, that there was no riot. And so Jesus coming into Jerusalem on this day was taking a great risk because as the great multitudes would come, you see the population of the city of Jerusalem in those days was around 600,000 people. But during the feasts, especially the high holy feast, it would swell up to as many as 3 million people. So that's quite a burst of, of people coming into the city. And so Jesus there on this day in one of the highest, holiest holidays comes and as he presents himself as their king, they initially, momentarily, accept him as their king, as their Messiah, but they didn't really know because they thought he was going to be their political Messiah. But of course, he was not. He was coming the first time to present himself as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And we know from Scripture, from the book that we hold in our hands, that one day in the book of Revelation, he will come as the king, but not just as the king over Jerusalem. He will come as the king of the universe, the king of the earth. On that great day when he rides into town, so to speak, on a white horse at the Battle of Armageddon and presents himself as king. But on this day, Jesus comes. John chapter 12 tells us John's account of this day, and it says the next day a great multitude had come to the feast, and when they heard that Jesus was coming, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's why we read Psalm 118 this morning. Hopefully you caught that. That's where it comes from. On this day, Psalm 118 is being enacted prophetically or reenacted because it's speaking of Jesus, because Jesus is the Hosanna Hosanna means come and save now, Lord. Save now and bring prosperity. So they were crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down the leafy branches, it says. Luke's account here has, says nothing about the branches, but that's where we get the Palm Sunday from. And so as Jesus is coming, he's presenting himself as their Messiah. And the reason this was happening, as we have read in our text, is because he had been healing people. He had been doing miracles for these last three years. People had seen it. And Jesus had this little entourage following him in this last year of his ministry. Uh, just a, a few weeks earlier, he had resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He had Mary Magdalene following him who had seven demons that Jesus had cast out. There were so many people Jesus had healed. Jesus had done miracles in Jerusalem, down by the Jordan River, up in the region of Galilee. People had seen them. There were eyewitnesses, and the word had spread. 
that Jesus, the miracle worker, had come. Jesus, this man who seems to be the Messiah, has come. Remember at the beginning, when the disciples were being called, that Andrew went and told his brother Peter, and he says, Peter, the Messiah is here. I found him. And that's the way the word was spreading. So now we've come to this day, this, this Sunday, just before the time of the Passover. It's Passover week. All of the congregants have come into the city of Jerusalem. It's now bustling with activity. The temple mount is busy. All of the, the people are there with the, the lambs and the doves and everything selling them. People are sleeping everywhere, out on the streets. It's just a crazy time. The city is overrun. And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem during this time, here's something that we need to understand about his mindset. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that Sunday, four days before Passover, two things are happening. One, Jesus knows that he only has four days to live. I want you to think about that. If you and I knew, for example, today being Sunday, that on Thursday you're going to die, how would you live? How would you be feeling? What would you be thinking about? And Jesus, on this day as he's riding into the city on this donkey, he knows he only has four days to live. But as he's riding, as he's coming, as he's presenting himself as the Messiah, they think he's coming to be the king of Israel, as we just read. But he's coming to present himself as the Lamb of God. On this day, four days before the Passover, this was the day, the 10th of Nisan, when the Passover lamb was chosen. So every family had to choose their Passover lamb on Sunday, four days before the Passover. Jesus is presenting himself as the Lamb of God. So coming to our passage, Luke 19, verse 28, when he had said this from the previous passage of the things that he had been teaching, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, understanding if, if you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, to Israel, please go. Even if it's on a business trip, go. Because it is an amazing place to see the Bible comes alive. Jerusalem is a city set on a hill. And the only way to get to Jerusalem is to go up to the city. As you approach the city from 360 degrees, you go up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples. Now, if you can picture the city of Jerusalem on a map sort of being in, in a circle um, and think about north, south, east, west, the Mount of Olives sits on the southeast corner of the city, just outside the wall. And it is a, it's a big hill, it's a mountain, but it, we would probably think of it more as a hill. And as you think about that, just on the other side of that hill was the city of Bethany and Bethphage, which was about maybe a, a mile from the Mount of Olives. And then as you come around the Mount of Olives, you're really right there on the corner of the city. So you're probably a mile and a half, two miles from Bethany and Bethphage into the city of Jerusalem, but you had to go either over or around the mount of, uh, called Olivet to get there. So Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead, saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied. And the other passages tell us that this colt is referring to a donkey. It's referring to a donkey being with its mother. So the mother is there which has no doubt been broken in and used for many years as a, 
a beast of burden, but here there is a cult that has never been broken in, a baby that has now reached maturity that can begin to bear a load. And he says, when you go there, you'll find that, and you'll find it that it's one that no one has ever sat on. It's not broken in. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Now, I don't want us to get lost in the familiar, familiarity of this story. I want you to think, it's always good to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. You're with Jesus. You're hanging out with him. You're convinced that he's special. You're not, maybe, maybe you're not fully convinced yet. Maybe you're not sure he's the Messiah. But you're with him, and you've seen what he's done, and you've seen him feed the 5,000, and you've seen him heal people. And now he says to you, I want you to walk over there, find a, find a couple of donkeys, and just grab them and bring them here. Now, in our modern vernacular, it would be like if you see a car sitting in the driveway running, just jump in and say, hey, the Lord has need of it if anybody says anything to you. Now, people would think you're stealing your car, right? Think about it. Jesus is saying, I want you to go get this and bring it here for my personal use. Here's what I want us to understand. The Lord often asks us to do things that are uncomfortable, doesn't he? He asks us to do things that may not make sense to us. You know how we are. Okay, well, why do you want me to do that, Lord? Why? I mean, tell me why and maybe I'll do it. That's kind of crazy. In fact, we might even say that's kind of dumb. But you notice that these disciples, they've learned by this point not to question Jesus. And I want you to understand that as you pray and as you seek the Lord and you're reading his word and you're fellowshipping with him, sometimes the Lord may give you some direction in your life and he may point you to do something or ask you to do something that, like this, may seem a little crazy. It may seem a little outside the box. And I want to encourage you not to dismiss it and say, well, that's crazy, I'm not going to do that. Listen, if the Lord is speaking, if he's asking us to do it, then we have to do it. The Lord has spoken to, to me many times over the years and, and directed me to do things that I was very uncomfortable with. But the point isn't not that, I, not that I'm comfortable with it. The point is to be obedient to the Lord, and these disciples were obedient. So Jesus here demonstrating to these disciples that he's sovereign, that he's over all things, certainly them being with him and seeing him rule and reign over nature. Remember, they, they were with him as he crossed the Sea of Galilee and a storm came up and they thought they were going to die and Jesus was asleep in the boat and they woke him up and said, Lord, don't you care that we're going to die? How can you sleep? Don't you care about us? And then they saw Jesus stand up and say, peace be still. As he calmed the storm, then he turned and he said, what is wrong with you? Oh, you have little faith. Didn't I say we were going to the other side? Didn't he feed the 5,000 with a box lunch from a little kid? Didn't Jesus heal 10 lepers? Didn't he raise Jairus' daughter from the dead? Think about all of the things that Jesus did. Didn't the woman walk up behind him in the crowd, the woman with the issue of blood? She had been bleeding for 10 years, had spent all of her money on doctors. It was at the end of her wits. And like Pastor Paul said in his video, often desperation is what drives us to prayer. And she reached out in the crowd and touched his garment. 
And Jesus said in that moment, whoa, stop. I felt power go out of me. I felt a flow of virtue from me to someone who touched me. And the disciples were like, come on, man. There's a thousand people here who touched you. Everybody touched you. What are you talking about? And he says, no, no, no. Someone had faith who touched me. They saw all of these things. And now Jesus says, go get a donkey. So they were sent their way, and they found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of the colt said to them, why are you loosing the colt? Giving them an opportunity to exercise their faith. And they said, just as the Lord said, the Lord has need of him. Everything happened just as Jesus said it would be. He's the Lord, isn't he? He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's coming. You see, we, we get stressed out about not knowing what tomorrow holds or not what's gonna, we don't know what's gonna happen in the next month, the next year. We have some appointment in the future that's looming over our head and we're worrying about it. Listen, doesn't the Lord know? Doesn't the Lord know if you're going to get COVID or not? Doesn't the Lord know if that virus is going to take your life or alter your life significantly? Or, I mean, the Lord knows these things, right? He wouldn't be God if he didn't. And so he said, say to him, the Lord has need of him, and they did. And they brought the, the mother and the colt to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sent, set Jesus on him. Now, it's a miracle for a man to sit on a beast that's unbroken, whether it's a horse or a donkey. And yet Jesus got on this donkey, and although we're not told the details, I'm quite sure that it being the Lord, the one who created the donkey, that the donkey bowed its head in submission as Jesus climbed onto its back and joyfully, willfully took Jesus on his destination. And as they went, they went up the backside of the Mount of Olives, they got to the top and then this, this throng began to take place and somehow the word had spread. Now, if you ever get a chance to go there, you'll see that as you come to the top of the Mount of Olives, the, the view of Jerusalem is incredible. In fact, most of the, city, the pictures that are sold of the city of Jerusalem with the gold dome, the Dome of the Rock, uh, the, the Muslim mosque, are taken from the Mount of Olives looking sort of north, uh, northwest. And that's where they take that incredible picture. And so that's where Jesus started from the top of that hill. And as you go down that hill, it does get fairly steep and it's pretty barren. And there's a lot of just dust and rocks. And the, the, the road sort of serpentines or snakes down the side of the mountain because you can't go straight down or you'd, you'd fall. And so Jesus gets on this donkey and as he draws near the crest of the mountain and begins the descent, the whole multitude of the disciples were there and they were waiting and they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, I would submit to you there was no event organizer. That the event organizer was not human but divine. That the Holy Spirit had orchestrated all of these people to be there how how else could it have happened if you again look at the map and you see where it is the people would have to be brought to that place something had to draw them to that spot to be there on that day at that moment at that exact time 
It's not like they sent out a save the date, hey, Jesus is coming. 10 a.m., Sunday morning, Palm Sunday, that's what we're going to call it from now on. I hope you can all be there. And I'll buy, bring in a couple of extra coats and cut down some palm branches on the way to use when Jesus rides down the hill on the donkey. And then when he does that, like a director in a movie, I want you all to begin to shout this and to do that. Remember, none of that happened. This is a divine thing that is happening at this very moment. So Jesus begins to, to ride this donkey, this baby donkey, down the hill. And as he does this, this is what is happening. The people have gathered, and they are shouting out of Psalm 118. They are prophetically and divinely uh, acting out that prophecy. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they are recognizing him as the Messiah, and they knew that they were doing that. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, uh, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, because they also knew what was happening. You see, they knew the word. They knew the scriptures. And as they were there, they were like, now wait a minute, we know you're not that guy, so tell them to stop because you're presenting yourself as a fraud, Jesus. The Pharisees called them from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. But he answered and said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. What is Jesus saying here? Is he just speaking with hyperbole? Is he just exaggerating? I don't think so. He's saying that this day had to happen at this moment, at this time, in this way. This is a divine appointment. This is a God appointment this day. And if these people were not here to be the voice and the mouthpiece of God, to proclaim Holy Scripture and to to declare that this is the day the Lord has made, that we will rejoice and be glad in it. If that weren't happening, the very stones underneath their feet would get mouths and they would begin to shout out and then you'd get really freaked out. You think you're freaked out now because the people are declaring that I'm the Savior? Imagine how you'd feel if the rocks were doing it. Now, in our world of computer graphics and animation, we can imagine this, right? It's no problem. Somebody could create this. Not really. Not in real life. And so this is happening. Jesus rides into Jerusalem with this donkey, and Jesus himself is enacting a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Now, Jesus' name in Greek is Jesus, and Hebrew is Joshua or Jehoshua. Jehovah is salvation, is the literal meaning of his Hebrew name. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Everything Jesus said when he told them to go and to get the donkey was in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. So Psalm 118 is being fulfilled. Zechariah chapter 9 is being fulfilled. The prophecies in the book of Leviticus around the Paschal or the Passover lamb being presented are being fulfilled. Prophecies are, are going off left and right like little balloons popping as Jesus is doing these things. Psalm 118 that we just read speaks directly of the Messiah. It says in Psalm 118 verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. 
This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. You see, Jesus was that gate. Remember how Jesus said in John chapter 10, I'm the gate to the sheepfold and all who come in, who become sheep, they must go through me. I'm the door, I'm the gate. And Jesus said to him, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus fulfilled John, uh, Psalm 118, verse 20. Continuing on, verse 21, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. That is what Jesus is doing. Then in verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This, is the, this verse is repeated all throughout the New Testament. Who are the builders, the religious leaders? Who are the ones that have rejected the cornerstone? It's the religious leaders of Israel. They have said, you're not the Messiah. Woe to the leaders. Jesus will condemn them because they led the people astray by saying that he was not the Messiah. And in Psalm 118.23, it says this. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. If you read Isaiah 53, it says there that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And here in Psalm 118, this is the Lord's doing. See, Jesus is fulfilling these scriptures left and right. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray. Hosanna, O Lord, O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Psalm 118, happening right before their eyes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. They recognized that Jesus was coming in the name of the Lord and to come in someone's name meant to come with someone's authority, with someone's blessing, with someone's power. Psalm 118.27, God is the Lord and he has given us light. Notice what it says at the, the last part of that verse, Psalm 118, <coughs> verse 27. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus was presenting himself as the sacrifice. You are my God, I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. It's interesting that in Psalm 96, it says this. Remember, Jesus said, if I tell them to stop, the very rocks will cry out, right? Psalm 96, verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all its fullness let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. You see, one day all of creation will bow down and worship the Lord. That will be something that will blow our minds when we see it. Now, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this day, remember we've said that this is a special day. In fact, as we go down a little bit further, uh, we're not there yet, but... Uh, verse 44 of Luke chapter 19, it says at the end of verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation, which would suggest to us, again, that this is a divine appointment. There is something very unique happening this day. Turn in your Bibles with me back to Daniel chapter 9. We want to take a moment and go back and look at this passage of scripture that is also amazingly prophetic about what's happening on this day. It's very precise. It is a, it's a prophecy that is dialed in 
to this very day in history. Daniel chapter 9, this may be a familiar passage to you as you turn there and you begin to read in verse uh, 23, you find that the Lord is giving Daniel a prophecy. And this is a prophecy that, that covers both near and far. So Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. So the angel is bringing this vision to Daniel, and here's the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus, that's the day of the triumphal entry. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, I believe that's referring to Satan as he comes to set up his uh, kingdom during the time of the tribulation, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That is the prince who is to come. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, we don't have time this morning to study this prophecy in its entirety, but the significance of this for us as we consider Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, is that right here in as we read this, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now Daniel, to whom this prophecy is being given, is currently in captivity in Babylon. And as he is there, the Lord has spoken to him as he was reading Jeremiah's prophecy and he understood what was happening, that they were in captivity because of their sin, that God had used the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge them for their sin, for how they had rebelled against the Lord. And so he realized that the end of this time is coming near. And so Daniel is a man of faith. He's, he's praying, he's seeking the Lord. And the Lord comes and he gives him this vision. And so from this time, uh, the people had not yet been released from captivity. They had not yet gone back to Jerusalem to begin repatriating the land of Israel or the city of Jerusalem that would later come uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra would take the first group of people back and they would begin uh, restoring and rebuilding the temple from the rubble. And then later Nehemiah would be commissioned to go back to, to rebuild the city itself and to rebuild the wall. So what he's saying here is, that from the, t the time uh, that the, the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, now when was that? We know precisely from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, that King Artaxerxes gave the, the decree, he gave the command, and I'll read it to you. 
uh, Nehemiah 2a, the letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house, which I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. We know from historical documents that that day was March 14th, 445 B.C., that's the day that the command to go forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem happened. And this prophecy says that from that time until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks. Now, without going into the long explanation, prophetically, a week refers to a period of seven years. So 69 weeks times seven years would get you to 483 years. So for all of you who didn't pay attention in math, you're gonna kinda, your eyes are going to roll back right now. Uh, 483 years, but this was according to the Babylonian calendar, which had 360 days in its year, not 365 as we have in ours, the Julian calendar as we call it. When you do the math, it's 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 B.C., if we're reading this prophecy correct. And when you do that and you, you mark off the days, 483 years to the day or 173,880 days, guess which day you come to on the calendar. From March 14th, 445 B.C., you come to April 6th, 32 A.D., which is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. You see, this is a very precise prophecy. Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, uncovered this in his research, and we're so grateful to him for being open to the Lord and, and studying it. But you need to understand something about this day that we call Palm Sunday, this week that we call Holy Week. I believe that this is the most important week in human history. Because this is the week that Jesus came to present himself to his people. This is the week that Jesus became the Lamb of God. This is the week that Jesus became the Passover Lamb and he was crucified for the sin of the world. This is the week, as we come to a week from today, next Sunday, that Jesus resurrected from the dead. That God raised him in power. And then if you go and you read 1 Corinthians 15, you'll now understand it in the light of all these things. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is the great resurrection chapter. That points us to the, all of the victories that God gave Jesus and that he gave to the world through Jesus and to all who would believe that the resurrection has taken the sting out of death. That's why Paul was able to write in 1 Thessalonians 4, when people die in the Lord, he said, we grieve but not as those who have no hope. We have hope because of Jesus. And so this amazing prophecy of Daniel fulfilled very precisely on this day that we call Palm Sunday. You see, the Lamb of God needed to come publicly and with great proclamation that everyone living in that time frame in that area who came to the city would see him. He came as the King. He came as the Messiah. He came to present himself to his people. The people on that day for a brief time accepted him as their Messiah, but they very quickly over the course of that next four days rejected him. And we'll find out why in just a moment. He became the Passover lamb <clears throat> who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He went into the grave on Thursday afternoon. 
but he rose victorious on Sunday morning. He became the righteous atonement for our sin, and thus it was able by Paul's pen to explain to us that he, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The fulfillment of the prophecy was an example of the perfect power of God displayed through his son, the donkey, the colt, the bystanders, what they would say, how they would say it, how it would come together, how it would be coordinated. You see, God knows everything. He sees everything. Nothing is too great for him. Nothing is too difficult for him. The prophecy of Zechariah from 500 years earlier fulfilled through the, the, the donkey and its colt. The prophecies of Psalm 118, the prophecies of Daniel 700 years earlier, the prophecies of the Passover being literally fulfilled going back to Exodus 12 as God gave the Passover to the people, the choosing of the Passover lamb on the 10th of Nisan Sunday, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb on the 14th of Nisan Thursday. Now as he drew near the city, Luke chapter 19 verse 41 Jesus began to weep. He wept over it. Now, this is the second time we have recorded in the scriptures that Jesus wept. The first time was as he approached the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary. And Jesus wept that day, but he wept because as he approached that tomb, we find the story in John chapter 11, that he was sad because of their lack of faith. He was sad because of seeing how they were responding and how much they, of course, loved their brother. And all of these things broke Jesus' heart because he saw what sin does to people. You see, it's because of sin that death entered the world. And so on that day, Jesus wept in grief and over the effects of sin. But today he's weeping over the city, saying, verse 42, if you had known, even you, especially you, this your day the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's saying, if you would have known that as I come, I'm, I'm coming to bring peace. I am the king of peace. I am the king of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, you will often see Jerusalem referred to by its shorter name, just Salem. And Salem means peace. You see, the heart of Jesus is broken because people are existing in spiritual poverty. They are existing in spiritual blindness. They don't know who he is. And certainly we see the same thing today, don't we? We all have friends and family who don't know the Lord. Perhaps we've even tried to share Christ with them. We've prayed for them maybe even for many years. And it's appropriate that we weep, that we shed tears over their soul, just as Jesus did because his own people were rejecting him. You see, we want to be broken for the lost like Jesus was because that's what Jesus was doing that day. He was broken. He was broken for the lostness of the souls of men. The psalmist wrote, Rivers of water run down my eyes because men do not keep your law. Jesus' heart was broken for people. The rulers of both the Jews and the Romans, according to the scriptures, were willfully ignorant. Someone has once said, and I like the phrase, there are none so blind as those who will not see. You see, they believe that there was a Messiah, but it wasn't Jesus. And there are many, of course, who don't believe that there is, even is a Messiah. 
But on this day, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, this was the day of God's visitation, not only to the city of Jerusalem and not only to the Jewish people, but for us. He was presented as the Messiah, the Prince, to them in fulfillment of prophecy. Here's a question for you and me this morning. Has God visited you? Because I believe today, as we sit here and as we listen to these words, as we hear the scriptures read, today is the day of visitation for us. And I believe that Jesus has intended it that every day throughout history until he returns, that when we take time on Palm Sunday to read these scriptures and to consider these things, that this is a fresh visitation of the Lord, if you will, that he is presenting himself to us today as the King, as the Messiah, as the Lord. And once again, for all of you out there who may be listening who have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, today is your day. Today is the opportunity that God is giving you to once again turn your heart to him. The book of Romans, and there are other places, but Romans chapter 1 tell us that one day when we all stand before him, we will be before him without excuse. So for those who rejected him and who chose not to believe in him, when they stand before him, whoever they are, they will stand before him without excuse. And Jesus weeps, and he says in verse 43 of Luke 19, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you Leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, Jesus in this moment in AD 32 is prophesying of what will happen in AD 70, which is when Titus Vespasian, a Roman ruler, would come in and literally destroy and level the city of Jerusalem. And what he will do in that day is he will take the temple of God and the temple mount and he will make it nothing but rubble. Now, the stones in the Temple Mount, they've been excavated. And if you go there today and you go into what's called the Wailing Wall, down beside the Wailing Wall, there is a, a channel or a tunnel, and it's very tight, and it's a little claustrophobic. But you can go down there and you can see the stones, how big they are, that today it would take a massive crane to lift. And the whole Temple Mount and the, the, the temple were built with these stones. People talk about the seven wonders of the world, but you know the temple is not listed, I don't believe, as one of those seven wonders. But that has to be one of the seven wonders of the world when you consider the intricacies of how the temple of God was built. And Jesus wept over the city. And he wept because he knew the time was coming when war was coming and they would be literally destroyed. They are spiritually destroyed already and yet that day God was giving them an opportunity to become spiritually whole and spiritually healthy. But he wept because he knew that they would reject him. Then in verse 45, it says, He went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. This actually happened the next day on Monday. So Jesus went out of the city after the triumphal entry, came back in on Monday, and this happened. And this is why they began to turn. On Sunday, they're cheering him. On Monday, they begin jeering him because he goes into the temple and he clears it. Now, the area he goes into is called the Court of the Gentiles. It's about a 1,000 feet square. It's the place where God had always intended that the nations would come and they would seek the Lord. He meant it to be a place where those who wanted to know God could come and know God. 
God did not put barriers up for the Gentiles. The Jews did. And they had now taken the, the space, that large court of the Gentiles, and they had made it a marketplace. Essentially, we could think of it as they built a mall in the thousand foot by thousand foot square, and they made it a place of usury. So if you came traveling as a pilgrim coming to the city to celebrate a feast, and you came in and let's just say you were poor and God made provisions for the poor, and all you have in a cage is two little birds to bring as your, your offering, your sacrifice before God. You're coming and you want to worship God and you want to be righteous and whole before God. And as you come, someone looks at them and says, your birds are not worthy. Your birds are not whole. They have blemishes. You need to go over there and buy some, some birds. Now, if you've ever traveled, anybody ever traveled, gone through the airport, when you go through security, a bottle of water that cost you a dollar now costs you $5. A turkey sandwich costs, costs you 15 bucks. Well, it's the same way here. They go into the court, and what's happening is a lamb that should have cost you three bucks now costs you 20 bucks or 30 bucks. A, a turtle dove that should have cost 25 cents is costing $5. And they are keeping the people from God. And it's extortion and usury, usury to line the pockets of those who were doing these things. And Jesus goes in, and he can't stand it. Now, he did this at the beginning of his ministry but he's doing it again today. And it's said, the zeal of the Lord of hosts has consumed me. Speaking of Jesus, yet another prophecy he fulfills. And he's, as he goes in and he quotes these scriptures, the first scripture is from Isaiah 56, which says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, that God desired that his temple would be a place that all people would come. And by the way, for the church, it's the same way the church should be open to all peoples and all nations. You know, we are not here to be segregated. Anyone of any nationality, of any background, they can come. They can come to any church. They should be able to come to any church and to come to the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 7, which we don't have to go into, have time to go into this morning, talks about how God looked at the people and he said that, you know, you were supposed to be worshiping me, but instead you were worshiping other gods. And as you read Jeremiah chapter 7, he says that they were provoking God to anger. And so Jesus, in fulfillment of that, as he comes in that day, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Someone appropriately pointed out a den of thieves is where thieves go after they have committed their evil, after they have committed their atrocities. The den of thieves is the hideout and the hangout of the thieves. And he's saying that's what the temple has become. These things ought not to be so. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Why? Because he told it like it was. Because he called them out. He exposed their hearts. And they were unable to do anything at that moment for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So they wanted to do something. They were angry. They felt that they were appropriate in arresting Jesus and, and doing something to him. But they also saw the following of the people that Jesus had. But as Jesus goes through these next few days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the tide will turn. As we close this morning, I want to now leapfrog and point you way ahead to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7 we find these words. After these things, I looked, 
And behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. You see, there's a time coming when once again this will be enacted and will, will be fulfilled in the throne room of heaven, at the footstool of God. And people will once again come with white robes, with palm branches, and they will worship the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the King. But that time it will be done in full righteousness, in full faith. And it says they will do so, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around of the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worship God. I think now you can understand why Jesus said if these people don't cry out, even the very rocks would cry out. See, thank God for his word. Thank God that the book of Revelation tells us there's even a fulfillment to the day that we call the triumphal entry. And that's why we've called this today the, pro the prophetic triumph, the day that Jesus fulfilled so many prophecies, proving he was God coming and making the people understand that he was the Messiah, he was the Lord, he was the King. And the call of the Lord today, as he once again reminds us on this day, is this. He's come to present himself to you, to me today, as the Messiah, the King, the Prince. Have you believed in him? Have you understood that he is the Savior? Have you put your faith and your trust and your hope in him? If you haven't, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Let us rejoice and be glad because this is the day the Lord has made. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we have had to study your word together. And we trust, Lord, that you are faithful. Lord, for those people that we've been praying for, that our hearts are broken for, Lord, when and how long? Lord, please remove the blinders from their eyes as you did for the Apostle Paul, that they might see that they might come to you. Lord, we don't want to, to be there one day by ourselves knowing that our, our loved ones are not there with us. Lord, we cry out to you this morning, right now, even by name in our hearts, for those people whom we love and whom we're praying for who do not yet know you. And Lord, we pray for those prodigals, maybe those people who once professed you, but they've walked away. And Lord, we leave these matters in your hands, but we pray and we intercede and we ask, God, please, you're the Lord of salvation. You're the God of glory. May you please open the door of salvation once again for those people that we're praying for right now. Lord, we love you. We bless you. Thank you for this glorious day, Palm Sunday. And may we leave this place rejoicing and praising because of who you are, because of who you've revealed yourself to be and because of whom you have proven yourself to be. Lord, there is no one who's ever proven more to us than you have. We love you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.